This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode will feature violence and sexual content that may not be suitable for everyone. Boots tramp and weapons rattle against armour as the huge English army marches down the road. Although they're in enemy territory, it's sweet countryside and the troops are in good spirits, bantering and joking as they go. They stop now and then to let their horses slurp at the river that runs alongside the road. Every so often, a detachment of engineers peels off from the army and starts putting up makeshift wooden forts along the route. They saw planks and hammer nails, grunting as they haul beams hewn from tree trunks into place. It's the high summer of 1211, and King John's war machine is on the move. After years of waiting, they're finally getting to business, on their way to seize land for their king, restoring him to the glory he deserves. Glory, he thinks, is well overdue. Anyone who gets in their way will be dealt with harshly. The best thing to do if you see the army coming is to lie low. That said, lying low is sometimes a military tactic in its own right. Especially round here. Because John's army isn't marching through France. This isn't the long-awaited invasion of Normandy or the reclaiming of the other territories snatched away by French King Philip Augustus. No, they're in Wales. And here, the time-honoured way of fighting is to use the countryside itself as a weapon. On the rare occasions that an English king is bold enough to try and conquer Welsh territory, the locals melt into the forests and mountains, only reappearing to launch expert guerrilla attacks on the invading army. That's exactly what happened to John and his men earlier in the year. They'd surged into North Wales to attack the most powerful native lord in that region, Llewellyn ap Hurworth, later to be known as Llewellyn the Great. Llewellyn was supposed to be an ally of John's. They used to be close. Indeed, in a way, he's family. But John was furious that Llewellyn was said to have supported the Briuse family when they were on the run. You'll remember from last episode that the king was trying to hound them out of existence. That vendetta ran so deep that John had decided to break Llewellyn's power too. John's first surge into Wales had been frustrated when Llewellyn's men did as the Welsh so often do and ran for the hills before harrying the English soldiers into retreat. That's why this time, in the summer, he's back with a much, much bigger army, too big to be picked off by guerrilla raids. 
Llewellyn's spies watch with horror as John's army rumbles into North Wales, and they send word back to their master that, to coin a phrase, resistance is futile. If they don't stop the English juggernaut, there'll be forts everywhere, and it'll be years before they can get John off their backs. So Llewellyn sends an envoy to meet the English army. And not just any envoy. When he and John were tight, he'd married the king's illegitimate daughter, known as Joan in English or Shuan in Welsh. This being the Middle Ages, we don't know much about Shuan. What we do know is that she was about 19 years old at this point, and Llewellyn is hoping that her appearance will soften her old man's heart. It's a clever play, and to a point, it works. When Shuan turns up to parley with the English, John respectfully puts the brakes on his march. We don't have records of how the daddy-daughter conversation goes, but John does agree to call his dogs off, with a few conditions. To put a hard bargain simply, John promises to go easy on Llewellyn if the Welsh lord hands over a massive chunk of land, a load of cash, and a few dozen of his good friends as hostages to guarantee his good behaviour. Llewellyn doesn't have much of a choice. If John's own daughter can't squeeze out a better deal than this, no one can. So he agrees. John stands his army down, feeling like maybe he's getting the hang of this warfare business after all. The time is coming when he'll be good and ready to hand out this sort of treatment to his nemesis across the Channel, Philip Augustus, King of France. John goes back to England, taking Llewellyn's hostages with him. Little do these unfortunate souls know they'll never be back in Wales again. But little does John know that in treating his neighbours so poorly, he's opening a can of worms. With his list of enemies growing by the day, it's only going to be so long before one of them decides to take matters into their own hands. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a Dynasty to Die For, Season 3, Episode 7, The Switch. I'm not sure how many listeners to this podcast are into cricket, but I am, and there's an expression in cricket punditry that I think fits John perfectly. It refers to a batsman who smashes easy balls all around the ground, looking fabulous as he does it, but is hopeless when he comes up against more difficult opposition. It's called being a flat-track bully. And John is every inch a flat-track bully as he demonstrates between 1209 and 1212. At this point, we're a decade into John's reign. He's in his 40s, and he's stuck in England because he can't quite afford a full-on invasion of his old lands in France. The English church is still on strike, thanks to that papal interdict, but John has turned the situation to his advantage by taking possession of church property. In the absence of any serious challenges to his power, 
the king is idling his time away, driving baronial families like the Bruises to death and destruction. On the surface of things, with every passing year, John starts to look more and more like a ruler you don't want to tangle with. Especially in what we would call today foreign policy. The long-term goal remains taking on Philip Augustus in France, but between 1209 and 1212, John's attention is fixed firmly on his small and relatively weak neighbours. He goes first at the Scots. The ageing king, William the Lion, is pushing 70 when John comes to the throne. But he still has big ambitions for enlarging Scotland, and figures he'll have a go at adding a few of England's northern counties to his realm. In 1209, William the Lion is said to be in contact with several northern English barons who are fed up with John's interfering style of kingship, and to be cozying up to Philip Augustus. To put him off both these ideas, John sends an army up to the Scottish borders. It's big and scary enough to have William begging for a peace treaty, sweetened with a massive pot of cash for John's French invasion fund. John makes him grovel and enjoys seeing the older man suffer. Straight after Scotland, John takes an army to Ireland. He's got a variety of beefs with various English barons who settled their families there. So he pulls out more or less the same flat-track bully playbook. In summer 1210, John lands a big army at Waterford, marches towards Dublin and scares the bejesus out of everyone in his path. And finally, there's Wales, where this episode began. John wants to show the Welsh who's boss, and he's willing to humiliate his son-in-law, Llewellyn, in the process. Once he's taken all those hostages and made Llewellyn bend the knee, John feels like he's on top of the world. Arguably, no English king before him has smashed the Scots, the Irish and the Welsh so hard in such a short space of time. One chronicler sums up the mood in the British Isles in 1212. There was now no one in Ireland, Scotland or Wales who did not bow to John's nod. A situation which, as is well known, none of his predecessors had achieved. Which is all well and good. Until it's not. Because John the flat-track bully isn't going to have things his own way forever. It doesn't take long for his apparent triumph to start falling apart. It's the Welsh who stick it to John first. For a few months after he humiliates Llewellyn and Shuan, things are harmonious. Llewellyn even travels hundreds of miles east to hang out with John in Cambridge for Easter in 1212. We can imagine John boasting at dinner that with the profits of his British wars and his ongoing scalping of the church, he's raising an army that's going to sail that summer to Aquitaine to give Philip Augustus what for. If so, that must be rather galling for Llewellyn to hear. His cash is now part of John's war chest. The outcome is that in the summer, just as John is about to head to Aquitaine, Wales erupts into all-out rebellion. 
all the forts John's army built in 1211 are razed to the ground. John has to put his French invasion on pause and march the army in the opposite direction to deal with this mess. He orders every soldier under his command to head for Chester, the nearest big English city to North Wales, and wait for his instruction. He's planning to go big, really big. He's going to take nearly 10,000 men storming through North Wales, building castles on a far, far bigger scale than the forts he set up the previous year. He's not just going to force a deal, he's actually going to conquer Wales completely. By late August, John himself is in Chester. On the night before his army sets out, he sits down for a slap-up dinner in anticipation of the fire and fury he's about to launch into Wales. As an appetizer, he's enjoyed some grisly entertainment. 28 of the hostages he took from Wales the previous year hanged. Now he's ready for his soup starter. And then, messengers burst into the dinner hall. One later chronicler says they come from Shuan herself, another that they come from William the Lion, who has spies in Wales. Whoever sends them, what the messengers say makes John's blood run cold. There's a plot, a very serious one, and it's coming from inside John's own army. Some of the barons are just waiting for the departure to Wales before they launch a brutal coup attempt. Once the army is underway, they're either going to make sure John is murdered by friendly fire, or else arrange for him to be ambushed and taken prisoner by the Welsh. There's talk of killing his kids, of doing dreadful things to his wife. John is terrified. Despite his natural paranoia, he hadn't seen this coming, and word is, this is no idle rumour. Indeed, two of his most powerful northern barons have fled the realm, which looks very suspicious. They're called Robert Fitzwalter and Eustace de Vesci. Make a note of those names, because we'll hear more from them. Everyone in the know is telling John, this is real. You've made more enemies than you realise. If you go ahead with this invasion, you're a dead man. John doesn't panic, but he does act fast. He can't risk continuing with the Welsh campaign. He disbands the main army and sends units off to Fitzwalter and Veshi's castles to seize them for the crown. Then he hightails it out of Chester and puts his sons, Henry, aged four, and Richard, still a baby, into safe houses. He realises he's going to have to postpone his expedition to France again. He also accepts the broader situation. In making himself master of the British Isles, the terror of his barons and the plunderer of the church, he's put several huge targets on his own back. If he's ever going to win back Normandy and Anjou, to reclaim that Plantagenet glory he so desperately desires, then he's going to have to start turning enemies back into friends. But where to begin? Well, 
That's where John turns up a rare political masterstroke. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At the same time that the Welsh are throwing a whole bagful of spanners into John's plans for a war with Philip Augustus, a hermit called Peter of Wakefield starts wandering around England telling people a bizarre story. From what we know about Peter, he was very much a man of the people. He was illiterate, possibly not entirely sane and rail thin since he lived on a diet of bread and water. In 1212, Peter has a vision in which Christ appears to him and tells him all manner of things, including, most importantly, that King John is only destined to reign for 14 years. Even in an age before compulsory maths tuition, people can run those numbers. John came to the throne in 1199. This means he's only got a year or so left. Quite a few people like the sound of this prophecy, and Peter begins to gather a following. It's the medieval equivalent of going viral. It isn't long before John hears about him, and has him arrested and brought to court. John summons Peter to his royal presence and demands he repeat his predictions. To be fair to Peter, that's exactly what he does. You're dead, mate, he says, in about a year. Peter doesn't attempt to weasel out of it, because in his mind it's plain as day. Christ has told him something, so it's true. John can do with him, says Peter, whatever he likes. Initially, John finds all this highly amusing. 
In fact, John actually is a big fan of hermits, as we'll discuss on this week's subscriber episode. But his advisers and counsellors are not amused. They convince John to deal with this impudent recluse. So John sends Peter of Wakefield to his favourite dungeon of no escape, and orders that he be kept in chains until after Ascension Day, 40 days after Easter, 1213. That's the latest possible date that John could survive, according to the prophecy. As time ticks down towards Ascension Day, John tries to keep cool and calm. Yet Peter's predictions, along with the massive shock of the plot between his own northern barons and the Welsh, is getting him down. It's at this moment that John finally realises he needs friends. Or at least one very powerful friend. If only there were some group in his realm whose whole world philosophy were based on saving sinners, offering forgiveness and turning the other cheek. If only... Eureka! With Peter of Wakefield's divine death sentence hanging over his head, John pulls off one of the most remarkable U-turns ever seen in British history. He sends word to the one man he thinks can protect him. John writes to Pope Innocent III. He tells him he's ready to come in from the cold. If the Pope will let him off the sentence of interdict, John says, he'll basically do whatever he's told. He's seen the error of his ways. John sends a delegation to Rome, armed with fine words of regret, and promises to be a better guy. The Pope goes for it. Now, Innocent III is no fool. Far from it. There's no shade of a chance he actually believes John has seen the error of his ways. But he's also an arch-pragmatist. He sees an opportunity for getting the Plantagenets to commit to supporting him in all his quarrels with other princes and kings. Innocent graciously sends word back to England, suspending the interdict. Then he sends officials to hold a grand open-air ceremony, welcoming the excommunicated John back into the church. Innocent also sends over to England the one man John wants to see least, Stephen Langton. Langton is Pope Innocent's pick for Archbishop of Canterbury, and one of the main reasons the relationship broke down in the first place. The deal is... If John wants to get back into bed with the papacy, he has to accept Langton. John says fine. Almost on a dime, England's position has totally switched. Ascension Day comes and goes, and John sees the light of a new day. Filled with gratitude and humility, he has Peter of Wakefield executed for his prophecy and turns his gaze back across the Channel. With the might of the Catholic Church at his back, and his royal coffers overflowing with silver, John finally feels strong enough to go storming back into France and make Philip Augustus pay. But is the flat-track bully ready 
for a real test. Find out next time on This Is History.